Their devotion to you would be unwavering, wholeheartedly committed to you. And so, Father, we come this morning with that request on our lips and in our heart. We come here gathered as your people to worship you because we need you. We need what you have to offer us. We need your spirit to work in our lives to transform our hearts and our minds so that we would follow you. Thank you for placing your spirit in us, for promising to give us everything we need for life and godliness. And yet we come this morning asking that you would do that so that when we leave here this morning, we would have a better understanding of the truth that we stand in and the grace that we rest in. Father, open our eyes and our ears this morning. We know that there's things that would keep us from hearing your word things that would make us and cause us to be resistant to it. And I pray that you would remove those things, those obstacles in each of our lives, each of our minds, each of our hearts. Maybe it was the game yesterday. Maybe it is something going on today. Whatever that thing is, would you remove it so that we can hear from you what we most need. Empower me this morning as your messenger. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you're seated, I'd ask you to... Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Filling in for Bill, sometimes it's difficult to know what passage to choose and how do you pick one. We just finished up 2 Corinthians in our Monday, or Wednesday morning Bible study and have spent some time there and enjoyed, was challenged by one particular verse in the passage we're going to read and pray that God will use it in your life as he's used it in mine. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. The the focus, really, of my message this morning, this message will be from verse 3. I'm going to give us a little context, verses 1 through 6. Paul writes, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. I consider that I am not in in the least inferior to these super apostles, Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Interesting passage we're going to look at this morning. You can even begin to hear as Paul writes to Corinth, the way that they are responding to him, their interest in him was beginning to wane. It was because some others had come in and began to teach a different gospel, a different message. Maybe you've been in those situations where what you thought you were getting was much less than what you received. Recently, I was with some friends, and there were about five of us hungry guys, and we had ordered a pizza. And the pizza, when we called the pizza place, they said, would you like an extra large pizza? What's an extra large pizza? Well, it's 30% larger than the regular large pizza. Well, we were hungry. We said, well, let's get the extra large pizza. Well, when the extra large pizza showed up, it didn't really look any larger than the large pizza that we thought that we might get, might get two of those. And we looked at the pizza and we said, five hungry guys said, this is supposed to be an extra large pizza. It's supposed to be 30% larger. And we said to ourselves, I thought there was more. 
I was expecting more when the pizza came. And Paul is writing into a kind of situation where his hearers, those in Corinth, are saying, I thought there was more to Paul. And yet as I compare his message, as I compare him to these other people who have come in, that are flashy, that seem to be more sophisticated, whose message is much more appealing than his message, as they looked at Paul, they looked at his message, they found him to be smaller. They found his message and his personality to be much less interesting than these individuals who had come. And they were saying, I thought there was more to this guy. And so Paul is writing into the situation in Corinth, and he's reminding them of the message that they first took hold of, the message that he had brought to them, and he's reminding them of the authority that he has. Um, that's different, isn't it? <laughs> the authority that he had, and he is writing to the situation saying, remember what you first adhered to. Remember the gospel that you first took hold of. And he reminds them of that authority that he had. A little bit of context as he writes in, Cor- in, in Corinth there. He visited them, and you can, you can read that in Acts chapter 18. He spent about a year and a half there, and he established the church. If you read through the first book of Corinthians that we have for us, this first letter, you'll find that there were many serious problems that the church had, and he wrote to them to correct them. And here in the second letters he writes to them, there's still problems taking place. And as he is writing, just before he writes this, he's waiting for the return of Titus, his friend who he sends to Corinth with a message of correction. And he's waiting for Titus, and he's wondering, how will they respond to this message of correction? And the first nine chapters of this book, 2 Corinthians, this letter that he writes, are very encouraging as, as there seems to be a positive response to the correction. And at these last four chapters, chapters 10 through 13, the tone shifts as he writes to them. As he addresses these false teachers that have come. And he addresses the issue of his own authority. And he addresses the issue of the gospel. What's important for us to remember as we read and look at this passage in these last four chapters as the tone shifts, as he establishes his own authority, as he boasts about Christ in comparison to the boasting that these other men would have, that as he writes to them, he is not, he is not just wanting to somehow, it's not a power game. It's not just that he has given up his power and he's trying to receive it back from them. It's not that he's just trying to gain, regain a situation of authority for his own good. But Paul recognizes that as these new teachers have come in and undermined his own authority, that it's not just about him, but they've undermined the gospel as well. And that as the, those in Corinth receive this, the teaching of these new teachers and the authority that they bring, that it's not just that they're dismissing Paul, they're dismissing his gospel. And so once Paul writes into this situation and says, Remember the authority that God has given me. Remember the message that I brought to you for the purpose of establishing the gospel in them and reaffirming it, this gospel with them. In verse 4, you see the vulnerability of this of chapter 11. He says, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one proclaimed, we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, Accepted, you put up with it readily. And so you see their willingness to receive someone else who would come. If it was an appealing message and if they were, they looked attractive. And so he's writing into this situation. 
And their accusation, their main accusation of Paul, these teachers that they would make in Corinth, is very clear. It's about how he appears to be. If you look in chapter 10, verse 10, there's an accusation that he deals directly with. Verse 10 of chapter 10. He writes, For they say, that's these teachers, and their accusation against Paul. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. We can see very easily there what they are accusing him of, what they see in him, is that he sounds great on paper. That he sounds great and yet as he comes, that there's something missing in his personality. There's something missing in his rhetorical skill. That somehow he lacks something there. The visible attributes of what they seem should he, that he should have, he does not have. And so what they're accusing him of, not of substance, but of style. That he lacks the style that these other men have. And indeed, if you were to picture them, they look good, they sound good, they dress nice, their hair is fixed, their teeth are white, their words sound very, very attractive. And their message is one that is very enticing. And yet Paul, you might say, as he comes, has a face for radio. That as he brings his personality and who he is, he doesn't quite square with them. And so what they're desiring and their vulnerability is that they would long to listen to these others. So Paul writes to say, hey, remember my authority that God established. Remember the gospel that you first followed and that you first understood. And remember, and he writes to them in a warning to say, be careful of the deception that these men would come and bring. Because they look good on the outside. But because of your context, because of how you see life, because how you see What's most important, you're vulnerable to believing something that is not true merely because it looks good on the outside. The first two verses of this section, you see Paul's relationship with them. He asks them to bear with him a little bit of this foolishness. He says, it's a silly that I have to write to you about these matters. But I write in this way. I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband. And you see that he is committed to their fidelity. He sees himself as a father of them, a father who's betrothed them as the church to the bride, as the bride to Christ. And so he says, my commitment is to you and to your fidelity, and my responsibility is to guide you in this direction. In verse 3, you see that this, this fear that he has for them, a deception, and his desire for them for a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And then verse 4 through 6, you see that they're vulnerable to receiving these other messages. That there's an inability that for, of them to distinguish appearance from substance, truth from error, and the real gospel from an imitation of the message of the gospel. As we see in verse 3, his fear and his desire for those in Corinth. That's what I want to focus on this morning. We see that he is genuinely concerned. He says, I am afraid that you would be deceived. That there's a genuine fear there, if you will, of their outcome if they follow this pattern. There's a genuine fear there of how they would live their lives and believe thoughts that are not true and follow a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. At the same time, there's a desire that he has for them. It's a desire that's connected with what he's seen in them, that they would follow Christ with a pure and sincere devotion. I want to look this morning at the nature of this deception, the nature of the deception that we see that Paul is concerned about in their lives. I want to look at the offspring of that deception, and then I want to look at the, the, how do we undermine that? How do we 
deal with the deception that the enemy comes and brings towards us. When first you see there, his fear is connected with, he says, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. As he says, my concern for you on this deception reminds me, reminds us of the deception that took place in the garden. It's a type, it's a picture, it's a description, this account in Genesis chapter 3, of the nature of deception, of, of what constitutes and what's at the heart of deception as the serpent comes. And if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, I want to look at that this morning. Because Paul says, my concern, my fear for you is about this deception. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> what I want to see in here is what's at the heart of the deception that's taking place that he is, we can learn from the situation in Corinth as well as apply to our own lives. 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the tree Eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There's much in this text, there's much that is here, but the very heart of deception, we understand what's happening. You see there how the, the serpent comes, and he invites her into a conversation. He says, did God really say that you can't eat from the, any tree in the garden? He entices her into a conversation that she should never be having. He entices her into an argument, a discussion that she should never be there. But he asks her a question and she readily responds. And you see her response to the question is she clarifies, but she also misunderstands God's commands. As he questions God's command, she comes and says, yes, no, it's just this tree, but God has said we should not eat from this tree, nor should we touch it. She exaggerates the commands of God. She moves beyond what God had said. And then in verse 4 and 5, you have this blatant contradiction of the serpent. He says, you will not surely die. The blatant contradiction of what God had said was true and right and good. He contradicts and says, you won't die. Indeed, if you eat of this tree, guess what will happen? Something very good will happen to you. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will be like God. He calls into question God's command. And he blatantly contradicts what God has said is true and right and good. And you see the response of the woman in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired for, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And what's important there is the progression. You see the progression of sin. You see the progression of deception. She looked, and she delighted, and then she desired. 
She looked and she saw and she thought about what it would do. She delighted in it and she desired to have it. As she was drawn into this conversation and this discussion, as the, as the enemy, as the serpent comes and says, guess what? The very thing that God is offering to you, you think, is life. He's leaving something from you. He's keeping you from something that is good. There's something hidden behind His commands. He wants to keep you from something. And if you would only know that, you would find this good thing that God is keeping you from. And at the very core, at the very heart, is an indictment of the goodness of God. At the very core of this deception is a question of, is God really good? Are His commands really good? And the, and the woman in the situation, and both of them in this case, they realize, they say, maybe there is something that God is keeping from us. Maybe there is some question here as to what God has said. Maybe His provision isn't complete. If you remember, they had every other tree in the garden to eat from. And if that wasn't enough, they had God himself that they could spend time with and walk with. And yet there was something more that was being offered in taking of this fruit and eating from this tree. They desired more than what God had provided. And so deception at its heart is connected to this desire. It's connected to this desire, I might even say, this demand to fulfill what I want on my own terms. They desired more than what God had provided. There's a natural correlation between desire and deception. A natural correlation between desire and deception. The strength of deception is tied to the strength of desire. The strength of deception is tied to the strength of desire. I want to be careful here. I'm not indicting desire. Desire is a good thing that God has placed in the human heart. But the desire is to be first and foremost for Him. The desire becomes evil at what point? At the point at which the desire for something else exceeds the desire for God. It becomes evil at the point at which my demand to have the desire fulfilled in my own life steps outside the bounds in which God has established. When I commit to jumping the fence that God has said you should go no further and trespass into territory that He has said do not go in order to fulfill my desires... I am now the desire has moved into territory is no longer good. So the strength of this deception is tied to the strength of a desire, rather a demand to have the desire fulfilled in my own way, in my own time. For example, we know that deception is tied to desire. A benign example is sports. Oftentimes in sports, deception is used to accomplish a play, to fulfill what the team would want. In a football, I played football. I helped coach this last semester, my son's football team. So I did watch the game yesterday. Where oftentimes you'll use a key player to distract the team. You'll move him one direction so that the team, the defense, will go there and to move the play another direction. Another play for you football types is something called the screen pass. There's many other plays that use deception. And one play like the screen pass is designed to use deception and desire to entice the defense in a direction. In this particular play, what happens is it looks like a pass play. I hope I can explain this. I need my X's and O's, but it looks like a pass play, and what the offense does is blocks and lets the defense through. Now, the, the trophy, the, the decoy in this situation is the quarterback, and the idea is that the defense would want the quarterback more than anything else, and they would forget their responsibilities, 
The line blocks, lets the defense through, and they go after the quarterback. And the quarterback merely throws the ball over this line who's coming at him to the halfback who has a whole line in front of him. Now the point of this, whether you got into that or not, is that the, the point of that play, it is more effective if the desire is there. The greater the desire for the quarterback, the greater the effectiveness of the play. The greater the desire for that causes the defense to forget about their responsibilities, to forget about what they really want, and they think the short-term desire of getting the quarterback is better than the long-term desire of running the play correctly. And so deception is tied to desire. The greater the desire, the greater the deception. Or I should rather say, the greater the vulnerability to deception. As we want something more than God, as even the situation wanted something more than God, she was vulnerable to deception. As those in Corinth want something more than what they have, something more than the gospel that had been brought to them, they were vulnerable to deception. Even her response, we see a distrust in the goodness of God. And her desire, as it shifted from God to something else, she became vulnerable to what else might be offered. She placed herself at the center. She placed herself in the situation of making those decisions as opposed to God. And he was resigned, if you will. He is displaced to the periphery of her life. No longer to be speaking into these kinds of decisions to say what was good and what was not good. And so, as Paul writes in the situation in 2 Corinthians, we see their vulnerability is that they want something more than God. And that their desire, the greater the desire, the greater their vulnerability to be deceived for more that they would want. But Paul goes on, he says, I'm afraid that you'll be deceived. I'm afraid that you're in a position to be deceived. That your heart is in such a state that you want what you want and how you see the world is in such a state that you're vulnerable to being deceived and your thoughts led astray from the sincere devotion to Christ. You see, the offspring of this deception is not immediately behavior. The offspring of being deceived is not immediately behavior or actions, but the offspring of deception are thoughts that are led astray from Christ. Our thoughts that are disconnected from the life of Christ. You see the language there. Your thoughts will be led astray. Led from this devotion to Christ. As, de- as deception leads to these thoughts. and It's a whole pattern of thinking. It's a way of seeing and thinking about God. Thinking about his world. Thinking about the orientation of what's right and wrong. And who should set those limits of what's right and wrong? About who's, if you will, in the center, the core, and leading our lives. And who should be making those decisions for us? It's a whole reorientation. So the thoughts that are led astray from Christ are thoughts that are begin, be, begin to orient around self. They're thoughts that begin to orient, or orient, excuse me, orient around what self wants. Again, back to the situation in the garden. As Eve, she shifted right from obedience to God, from enjoyment of God and all He had provided, from being faithful to Him. There's a shift to self. And a commitment from God, a commitment to self-fulfillment. A commitment to begin to ask the kind of questions, well, what will make me happy? Is there something more? And so self stands at the center there of these thoughts. But they're not just selfish thoughts. To move in further, they're rebellious thoughts because they displace God, the rightful owner, the rightful one who 
owns our devotion, who deserves our devotion, who is worthy of our devotion. He's provided everything that we need as we take his place as king in making this decision. Then they become rebellious, these thoughts. Rebellion against, it's rebellion against the goodness, the sufficiency, and the sovereignty of God. It's a rebellion against what he says is good. In replace of that, we say, no, I know what good is. It's a rebellion against the sufficiency of God where he says, I have provided all that you need. And we say, no, I think there's something more. It's a rebellion against the sovereignty of God where he says, I am the sovereign one. I am in control. And we say, those in Corinth said, Eve said, no, I think I'm in control. I think I will take the reins of my life, if you will. And the creature becomes central and the creator is resigned to the periphery. But these rebellious thoughts are more than just selfish and rebellious. Ultimately, they're deadly. We see in certainly in the account in Genesis 3 what it did. And the whole trajectory that was set there was sin and the fall. Would be redone in Christ. Was no surprise there in God's actions. It was undone. Restoration has begun. But they're deadly. And you see Paul's concern for the church in Corinth. He says, I am afraid. Not because there's somebody else coming in. This is a nice message. Not because of anything else except that there's deception going on here and that there's thoughts that lead down a road. Thoughts oriented purely around self, displacing God from his rightful place, calling into question his goodness, his sufficiency, and his sovereignty. These thoughts are deadly. They're not nice. They're not cute. But they're deadly as they lead us astray from Christ. We might think that sometimes disobedience is cute, like a little toddler that keeps taking his mom's keys and playing with them against her will. And you go, oh, that's cute. But what's more appropriately expressed is a toddler who's playing in a disobedient way with 10,000 volts of electricity. It's not cute, but it's deadly. And when we walk down a road where our thoughts are reoriented around self, when they're rebellious, they lead ultimately to destruction. And so Paul writes to them, he's concerned about them, he says, there's deception. You're vulnerable to being deceived. If you want something more than Christ, you're in a position that is precarious. Then he goes on to say, your thoughts will be led astray. Deception leads as an offspring to thoughts that are not honoring to Christ, that are selfish. In Corinth, they were culturally disposed to these ways of thinking that were selfish. I want to read just a few things that describe Corinth at the time, as well as what you can, you can glean from these letters. They emphasized what looks good and sounds good. They were interested in what was smooth, distinguished, and sophisticated. They were most interested in what was flashy and sensational, what had the appearance of being successful. The false teachers' messages, they came. They came with a focus, with an emphasis on self rather than on Christ. They had an emphasis on victory and triumph and not on sacrifice. They had some sense that the promises of heaven should be taken today. That we should demand and be able to expect the promise of heaven here and now. And so when they boasted, they boasted about their power. They boasted about their prowess. They boasted about their skill. And, and Paul boasts. But you know what he boasts about? The, the, half, the last half of this chapter, he boasts about his afflictions. He boasts about his sufferings. He boasts about the thorn in the flesh, about his weaknesses, because he understands that it's not about victory and triumph. The promises of heaven are for heaven. The promise of now is the way of the cross. 
And yes, there's triumph to be had, but only as the king will bring it and give it to us. They expect and demand the promises of heaven today. They emphasize being served and not serving. We were preoccupied with externals and the things that were superficial. Their gospel was shaped more was shaped less by the cross and more by their own ideas of success. The religious language, God was removed from the center and self-interest, and what man would want were placed at the center. And they boasted about themselves rather than boast about Christ. It gives us a picture of the situation that Paul is writing into. Does that sound familiar to you at all? The more I looked and you read, you go, you know what? We are there. We are susceptible to the same kinds of lies. We are susceptible to the things that look good and sound good and appeal good and appeal to us and have the appearance of success and not the way of the cross. That's what we want. And Paul says, remember where this leads you. Remember where this leads us. The nature of deception is that it ties into desire. And the stronger the desire, the demand is that it, the stronger its effectiveness and vulnerability that we have in our lives. The offspring are thoughts that lead us astray from Christ. But Paul writes not just about his fears for them, but I think a vision for them, his desire for them. The last half of this, as he says, that you've been led astray or that you're in fear and, and I'm concerned that you'll be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He says, I have a greater vision for you. I've seen what's true and what's right in your life. And the question we ask is, how is it that we can undermine? How is it that we dismantle the power of deception in our lives? How can we not be vulnerable, if you will, or to diminish the vulnerability that we have to this deception? Well, simply, the power of deception is undermined as we find Christ to be enough. As we find ourselves content in Him, Content with what he's provided. Content in, in all that he's done for us. Because we find him to be enough. Paul's desire for, for them is that they would have this sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That they would be wholehearted and single-minded in their devotion to Christ. That there would be a sincere fidelity as a bride for her groom. This sincere fidelity takes the form of a variety of things. It looks wholehearted. It is wholehearted. It's unreserved. It's unpretentious. It's authentic. It's simple. It's uncomplicated. And for those who are content with Christ, those who have found Him to be enough, there's no deception to be had. As we find ourselves in that situation, we find Him reminding us of who He is. The offspring of deception is that our thoughts are led astray from Christ and disconnected. The offspring of commitment is that is the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The offspring of our contentment in Christ is that we're the sincere and pure devotion. Now, how is it that we can cultivate this? How is it we grow in that? I don't know about you, but as the offers of our culture continue to grow, my own eyes, as, as Eve would look and you go, maybe there is something more than just this. Maybe there is something more than just this book and this. And the offers of, of our culture seem to be so attractive at times. How is it that we cultivate a contentment for Christ? A couple things that's important for us. First of all, 
that we'd watch our desires, that we'd watch the things that our hearts go after, that we'd be careful to guard our hearts. As the writer of Proverbs said, he says, he writes, above all else, guard your hearts, for from it comes the, the wellspring of life. Guard the things that you want. And I think the point there isn't that you shouldn't want things. You should want the right things. You should want God first and foremost. You should desire Him. And you should guard the way your heart would go after other things that are not of God. Things that He has said no to. Things He's put a fence up and said you should go no further here. So we guard our hearts. We guard our eyes. We guard the things that we see. And we cultivate a heart for God. And that's why we meet here. To remind ourselves of what, is real, what holds real value. What is really important, not the short term, but the long term. The real gospel. That is not you can get what you want today and be happy, but rather follow Christ and fulfillment will come. As you seek a fidelity in your relationship with Him, as you seek Him wholeheartedly, that you desire the right things, He will meet those desires. He will meet you, provide those desires with Himself. So the first thing to cultivate this contentment is to watch our desires. Secondly, it has to do with the world of our thoughts. We take captive stray thoughts. Just a chapter over, Paul writes these words. Verse 5 of chapter 10. We, desire, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion, opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We take captive those thoughts that run through our minds that are not honoring to Christ. We don't do this on our own, mind you. We do this with his strength. But we're aware that those thoughts run through our head. We run them through the grid. Is this honoring Christ? Is this worthy of him? And again, I don't know about you, but the thoughts that run through my mind that our culture just fills us with. There's a few phrases that just are kind of there. And I might not ever say them, but oftentimes I thank them. And here's a few of them. The things that run through my mind. You deserve that. You deserve that. You deserve there's 50 things I could say. You deserve a 50-inch screen plasma TV. I don't know. You deserve that. You need that. You'll look foolish if you don't or if you do. God, does God really expect you to live that way? Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? Or did he mean something else? God's keeping you from something good. There's something that he hasn't provided for you that's good. Those are the kinds of lies that we hear. Those are the kinds of thoughts that we take captive. Romans 12, 2, Paul writes, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will know what the will of God is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. By the renewing of our mind, by the rethinking reordering the way that we think through his word by gathering together by worshiping him it reorients us as his people finally we cultivate a contentment in christ to deal with these this deception and our thoughts we cultivate it primarily as we as we pursue christ and rest in, in him alone as we remember the gospel remember as michael prayed earlier what he has rescued us from we remember that we're his children remember that we're his bride Remember that he has provided everything that we need for life and godliness. And remember that we're most satisfied in him. We will only be satisfied with him. The things that the world offers, the lies that are there, the deception that's there. You've tasted it, I've tasted it, and I know it's not 
there. It is not substantial. It will not satisfy only Christ's will. Christ offers us living water day in and day out. I read in the call to worship that great line, that great invitation that Christ has for all of his, all those who would follow him. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink and I will provide for you. I will make you, if you believe in me, be rivers of living water flowing from you. He is the place where we have found life. He is the place where to draw from. He is the only one that we will be content with and satisfied with. Conclude with a final passage in, in Psalm 86. Psalm 86. The psalmist here, as he writes, it's a, it's a prayer. As he looks at his own heart, he finds the propensity, the vulnerability of his heart to be disunified, to be split, to be broken, and to find that his own heart is not unified to follow God. And he writes in 86.11, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. The NIV says, Give me an undivided heart. We can't do this on our own. We can't deal with the deception and the vulnerability to that on our own. The strength that's there as we desire Him. We can't deal with the thoughts on our own. The thoughts that divide themselves and go after the world at the same time we know what really matters. We need Him to unite our hearts. We need Him to give us an undivided heart. A heart that is sincerely and purely devoted to Christ. It is a work that the gospel does in us. It's a work that He continues to do in each one of us as we understand the nature of deception, as we understand the way our thoughts are to go, as we find Him to be enough, the power of deception is undone. Our thoughts are united in Him to fear Him and to bring Him glory, the glory that He deserves and the devotion that He deserves. And we in turn find the life that we have always wanted. We find it in Christ. Let's pray. Father, you know our frame. You know that we're but dust. You know that we are vulnerable to many temptations. As we look around and we see the offers of the world around us, security, significance, satisfaction, fulfillment, the more that we desire those, we know we find ourselves in a slippery place. Would you first and foremost give us a desire for you? Would you remind us of deception and where it leads? Would you reveal to us in our minds, those thoughts that are not honoring to you, would you cause them to be obedient and worthy of Christ? Would you enable us together to encourage and sharpen one another that our thoughts and the way that we live and the way we orient our lives is around you and not about self? That our gospel is a gospel of Jesus Christ and not a gospel of, of success and looking good and feeling good and being happy all the time, but a gospel around the person of Jesus Christ that our thoughts would be honoring to you. Would you make us satisfied in you? Cause us to be content. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Give us an undivided heart. Renew our minds this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I would ask you to stand for the benediction. The response to the benediction this morning is, the Lord Jesus is enough for me. Um, in the original copy I'd given to Betty, I actually had underlined the is. Um, tried to emphasize it. 
uh, for my benefit. That he is enough today, tomorrow, the next day. And he's not just barely enough. He is abundantly enough for us as we will seek him. Receive this as God's benediction for us this morning. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you in his glorious presence, before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. And God's people said, the Lord Jesus Christ is enough for me. Hallelujah.